0: Previously on Flying the Line, the pilots of Eastern Airlines strike and ALPA is forced to walk a fine line with management. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 24, Skyjacking, part one. While graceful and powerful, the jet airliner is also delicate and vulnerable. Armed with a bomb or gun, the few who would make war on the many have always been able to hold society hostage temporarily. Jesse James distorted the Society of Frontier Missouri by robbing its unguarded banks and trains. Similarly, skyjackers were able to distort commercial aviation, ironically linking Jesse James's heroic status with the admiration many people felt for skyjackers. Just after Fidel Castro seized power in Cuba, most skyjackers were people fleeing communist tyranny and hence freedom fighters, to many Americans. For Captain J.J. O'Donnell, who stepped from the command of an Eastern Airlines DC-9 to the helm of ALPA in the midst of a pervasive wave of international aerial piracy in 1971, the crusade against skyjacking would be an all-consuming passion. Nearly everything ALPA did between 1970 and 1974 would have to take a back seat to eliminating the existential threat of skyjacking. Like his predecessor, Charlie Ruby, O'Donnell would face his share of sticky issues and impossible situations. However, none would rival skyjacking in intensity. The early history of skyjacking bears some comparison to that of the safety issue. Put simply, Safety was so expensive that both management and government skimped on it because of their principal concern for profits. Historically, some of ALPA's toughest fights were with the companies and government over the proper balance between safety and economy. In a sense, this scenario would repeat itself in Skyjacking, with ALPA using a no holds barred approach and the government and airlines trying to go with the least costly solution. By 1970, professional airline pilots the world over were infuriated at the penny-pinching that had characterized the response to skyjacking. With an epidemic of political and economic terrorism in the world, capped by the simultaneous skyjacking of four airliners on a single day in September 1970, the professional airline pilots of the world, speaking through the International Federation of Airline Pilots Associations, known as IFALPA, would demand strong action to curb aerial piracy. Pilots couldn't understand why the governments and airlines were so reluctant to move against skyjacking. The lead editorial in the New York Times on September 14, 1970 explained this reluctance by pointing out that concern for profit was preventing the airlines from taking the kinds of measures that would prevent skyjacking. Jack Bavis, who was an Eastern pilot before becoming O'Donnell's executive administrator in 1971, was given the personal responsibility for overseeing ALPA's anti-skyjacking program in the early 1970s an ex-Massachusetts state policeman, Bavis brought special expertise to the Eastern Airlines Flight Security Program. The combined efforts of ALPA and IFALPA to create effective ground security systems would suffer, partly because the public didn't want to be inconvenienced. Expensive ground security, long backed by ALPA, to prevent skyjackers from boarding, was the only answer that ever made sense. Effective ground security systems were practical and available as early as 1963. However, it wasn't until tragedy and the unrelenting pressure from ALPA that forced the hand of the FAA and management to implement their widespread use in 1973. Although aviation had seen random skyjacking before, The modern history of the subject begins in 1959, the year Fidel Castro seized power in Cuba. When anti-Castro Cubans began commandeering airliners to flee their homeland, most Americans were in full support. After all, Castro was a communist, and people fleeing his tyranny seemed to deserve sympathy. Although most professional airline pilots saw the dangers of skyjacking immediately, the public was having too much fun sharing a laugh at Castro's expense to worry about the long-range implications of skyjacking or the possibility of this tactic spreading. It never seemed to occur to the average American that applauding an escape to freedom accomplished with a pistol at the head of an airline pilot albeit a Cuban communist one, was not the wisest precedent for the nation with the world's most extensive air transportation system. All through the 1960s, as Castro consolidated his power, Cuban opponents of his regime continued to flee in everything from leaky sailboats to oversized inner tubes. Their plight became more desperate as Castro's firing squads began eliminating officials of the Batista regime. Needless to say, someone who expects to be lined up against the wall and shot will not trouble themselves over the legalities of the method of departure. If a pistol must be their passport, then so be it. And anyway, for most Americans, skyjacking was something that happened only in communist countries. Then. In May 1961, the tables were turned. A man describing himself as pro-Castro skyjacked a National Airlines Convair 440. The skyjacker was armed with a knife and a pistol, so Captain Francis Riley was in no mood to argue with him. En route to Havana, the skyjacker ranted about warning Fidel of an assassination plot. Riley later described the Skyjacker as mentally unstable. After landing safely in Havana, the crew and 17 passengers were allowed to depart. The Skyjacker was never seen again. It was the first Skyjacking to Cuba, but it would not be the last. On July 24, 1961, barely three months later, an Eastern Airlines Electra with 38 passengers aboard was diverted to Havana. Castro promptly released the crew and passengers, but he kept the plane as a pawn in his game to have the United States return the collection of fishing boats, airplanes, and even naval vessels that had been hijacked to the mainland. Castro declared that he would release the Electra as soon as the United States agreed to open formal discussions about putting a halt to skyjacking. He also wanted an agreement to return hijackers to the flight's country of origin to face prosecution. The U.S. government balked. No politician in his right mind, given the public's antipathy towards Castro, dared return an anti-communist freedom fighter to Cuba nor were we about to return any of the hijacked vehicles to Castro. After two weeks, Castro relented and the Electra was released. In a historical ironic twist, Castro made the first overture to end skyjacking, but the United States rebuffed him, and there the matter rested, with the news media tending to portray those who escaped from Cuba as heroes. This glorification was bound to have an influence, and the idea of skyjacking, once implanted in an unstable mind, was bound to have consequences. On July 31, 1961, Oscar Cleal was doing what he liked best flying his Pacific Airlines DC 3 over the company's interstate route in California. That day, Oscar Cleal made what would prove to be his last landing as an airline captain with a certain nostalgia. He was scheduled to return to the Martin 404 soon, so he expected to be flying again, but not in the trusty old DC-3. Cleo and First Officer Al Wheeler chugged up to the ramp and shut down, anticipating a delay due to a late-arriving passenger. The two pilots relaxed, and idly discussed the weather at their next stop. As they waited, Cleo and Wheeler heard a commotion, first in the baggage compartment, and then in the cabin. He looked out the window and saw station agent Bill Hicks dragging himself away from the airplane, holding his side. Then there was a pounding on the door. Cleo and Wheeler added up the odd circumstances and surmised that a skyjacking was underway. Seizing a wrench, Cleo rose from the left seat to do battle. Then he heard a pistol shot and a voice directing him to get into the sky or else. The flimsy flight deck door was bulging as the gunman frantically tried to burst in. Cleo positioned himself behind the left seat in an alcove used to hang coats. The instant the gunman crashed in, Cleo intended to hit him with the wrench. But mindful of the hazard facing the passengers, Cleo ordered Wheeler to start the right engine and taxi away from the terminal, thus humoring the Skyjacker temporarily. Wheeler complied, but the DC-3 wouldn't budge. The parking brakes were set and could only be released from the left seat. Cleo left his ambush and jumped into the left seat to release the brakes. At just that instant, the door latch gave way, and Cleal found himself staring straight into the barrel of a pistol. The skyjacker was an unemployed, homesick man who wanted to go back to smack over Arkansas. The only problem was, he was broke. But he did own a pistol, and the Cuban skyjackers had given him an idea. Why not flee California? The hated land of city slickers and strange customs by pointing the gun at an airline pilot. Once home, the Skyjacker would simply disappear into the hills, perhaps to be regarded as a hero by the home folk. Using the ruse that he needed a chart from his nav kit, Cleo attempted to maneuver into a position where he could grab the gun. But when Cleo made his move, the pistol went off, wounding him. First Officer Al Wheeler, a husky ex policeman, jumped the Skyjacker, grappling with him over the gun as the taxiing DC 3 careened onto the airport apron. The Skyjacker fired five shots in all before Wheeler knocked the gun from his hands. He then produced a knife, obliging Wheeler to fight on as he tried to control the taxiing aircraft. Finally, three passengers rushed forward to help Wheeler subdue the skyjacker. The skyjacking was over, but for Oscar Cleel, who was blinded in one eye by the hijacker, the struggle was just beginning. If the story of the tragedy that befell Oscar Cleel has anything like a happy ending, it's that he battled back against the darkness to become a successful stockbroker. He had been working on the Pacific Airlines Retirement Committee, so as soon as his health permitted, Cleo began studying. With the help of his nurses and wife, who read aloud to him, and recordings for the blind, which transcribed the textbooks he needed, Cleo passed the necessary examinations. Later, Cleo got hired by a prominent investment firm working there for 13 years specializing in retirement and pension plans. ALPA President Clancy Sayen, spurred by the tragedy that befell Oscar Cleel, issued steady warnings about the vulnerability of the air transportation system. Using his influence with the Democratic administration, Sayen was instrumental in persuading John F. Kennedy to ask Congress for special anti-skyjacking legislation. In 1961, a potpourri of federal and state laws impinged in some way on the problem, and this diversity of statutes was itself a source of encouragement to potential skyjackers. For example, the skyjacker who ended Oscar Cleel's career got the harshest sentence possible under existing law. However, that meant he would be released after 15 years. From 1961 on, ALPA's primary goal was to make sure not only that skyjackers paid heavily for their crime, but also that air piracy itself would be as difficult as possible. And here is when chance intervened, for in 1961, the skyjacking epidemic suddenly abated and the public lost interest. Congress was reluctant to take expensive corrective action so it failed to mandate the necessary security measures. The skyjacking issue merged neatly with the safety issue, which always had a dollar sign attached to it. Getting a law passed providing stiff penalties for convicted skyjackers was relatively easy. Under Albus' prodding, Congress passed and President Kennedy signed, in record time, a new air piracy act. Although stiff penalties and a tough law on the books look good, neither took any courage to pass because there was no price tag attached. FAA Administrator Najib Halabi imposed some precautionary measures in August 1961, mainly requiring locked and bolted flight deck doors. But the Air Transport Association opposed more stringent measures. Halabi, always sensitive to the economic health of the carriers, backed down from stiffer prevention measures. Alba was successful in getting a congressman to introduce an amendment to the Federal Aviation Act of 1958 that would have tightened screening procedures to prevent people carrying concealed weapons from boarding as passengers. Again, ATA opposed any kind of passenger screening or search. By 1962, when Charlie Ruby took over as ALPA president, it was obvious that the FAA was going to bow to ATA's opposition to tougher screening of boarding passengers. But it did, and ironically, it was at Oscar Cleal's own airline, Pacific. On May 7, 1964, In a chilling preview of the violence to come, another deranged individual shot his way into the flight deck, killing Captain Ernie Clark and First Officer Ray Andres. The Skyjacker's object apparently was suicide. All 44 persons aboard the aircraft died in that crash. The FBI later traced a revolver found in the wreckage to a man who had just bought a $60,000 life insurance policy at an airport kiosk. For years, ALPA had been railing against these instant insurance policies, but since somebody stood to make money from them, they stayed as a permanent temptation to the deranged in airport lobbies. At this point, professional airline pilots began to arm themselves. In August 1961, Just after Oscar Cleal's wounding, ALPA officially came out against armed guards aboard aircraft to prevent skyjacking. If firearms were going to be used, most pilots preferred to use them themselves. But ALPA continued to support rigid pre boarding passenger searches as the best alternative. By 1965, the jet airliner had become a widely accepted symbol of the power of modern civilization. A new glamor attached itself to these sleek, continent-shrinking machines, and a new word, the jet set, was coined to describe the elite groups of every society who flew in them. But although jet travel was still associated in the public mind with extravagance and luxury, by the mid-1960s, it had become, in fact, the dominant mode of intercity travel for everybody, from common people to the wealthy elites. In short, jet aviation had an aura of power and romance, but everybody had access to it. It was only a matter of time before anyone with a grudge against society would focus upon the jets as a means of getting attention and settling grievances. The airline pilot became for many of these troubled people a kind of therapist or counselor whom they could appeal to. All a skyjacker needed, either to get away or to get attention from a society that ignored them, was an airline ticket, a weapon, and the will to use it. Then somebody would have to listen. This threat hung over every airline pilot, Several hundred flight crews had to face the challenge of a skyjacking, ranging from the 28-hour odyssey of Captain William Haas of Southern Airways to the wounding of Captain Dale Hupe of TWA, each of whom had to make life-or-death decisions to save their aircraft. But no case is more significant than that of Captain Bob Wilbur and First Officer James Hartley Jr. of Eastern Airlines. On March 18, 1970, Bob Wilbur and Jim Hartley narrowly saved their passengers from a skyjacker intent on suicide. The would be skyjacker, who forced his way at gunpoint into the flight deck of the DC 9 piloted by Wilbur and Hartley on a Newark to Boston flight, ordered them to fly eastward over the Atlantic. Wilbur's pleas that the plane was nearly out of fuel left the Skyjacker unmoved. It became apparent to Wilbur and Hartley that their unwelcomed guest intended to kill everybody on board. The two pilots had no alternative but to grapple with the man who stood menacingly over them with a pistol. Wilbur and Hartley subdued the Skyjacker as shots ricocheted through the flight deck. Their victory was costly. Hartley, badly wounded, managed to wrestle the gun from the Skyjacker and shoot him with it. Wilbur, bleeding from his gunshot wounds and on the verge of losing consciousness, somehow managed to land the DC-9 in Boston. Unfortunately, Jim Hartley succumbed to his injuries during the final approach. For Alpa, the martyrdom of Jim Hartley meant that mere gestures— like the naming of Eastern's new flight crew training facility in Miami after Hartley, would no longer be enough. With pilots threatening to retaliate against both the government and their employers by a suspension of service, or simply withholding their labor for a period of time, the tide at last turned in favor of the active prevention Oscar Cleal had first suggested back in 1961, Practical electronic screening devices had been available for a few years, but the FAA had delayed making these passenger screening tools mandatory because of the ATA pressure against them. Although the FAA had shown considerable interest in electronic frisking of passengers, it moved so slowly in instituting a full-scale test of the devices at Dulles Airport that most airline pilots were disgusted. ATA gave its blessing to the dullest tests, but insisted that it not create an inconvenience for passengers, and that the airlines should not have to bear any of the expense of the system. Next time on Flying the Line, ALPA's fight against skyjacking is taken to the next level. As an unorthodox tactic, is deployed to raise public awareness in the wake of continued violence. Thank you for listening. This has been Part 1 of Chapter 24 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins, copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line Podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production Copyright Alpa 2021. All rights reserved.